Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans. Boy, I tell you what, if those of you in our, our early service, um, and you don't get to come to both of them, you missed out this morning. Uh, we were giving away our, our Operation uh, Christmas Child shoe boxes, and we started throwing them out like Lambert's Hot Rolls. Amen. And the kiddos were delivering them for us. You just got to trust me. We had a good time uh, this morning. But if you haven't gotten yours, uh, feel free to grab one tonight. We've got a bunch more that we're going to do. Our goal this year is uh, 200. We did about 100 last year. We're going to do 200 this year because God is good and it's a ministry that's worth supporting. But we'll be talking more about that later on. Again, turning your Bible to the book of Romans. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series on Sunday night and it's called Epic. Epic. You know, I love to read. I don't know if you know that or not. I love to read. I like to read. You know, when I was a little boy, when my parents got divorced, I stopped getting whooped. Anybody got whooped when you were a kid? Right? And then, so when my parents got divorced, my first stepfather, his name was James. And James was an educated man. And he did not believe in beating the children. And James believed in grounding children. Amen? And I believe in beating them and grounding them. I don't know. It's just a double whammy. I'm not sure which one works. We're trying both, okay? Anyway, it's so the one thing that I would never be grounded from, though. I'd, you'd have to go to your room. You'd have, you, know, you couldn't watch TV and all this stuff. One thing I was never grounded from uh, is books. I love books. And uh, a lot of people uh, enjoy reading. Do you like readers? Readers, you enjoy reading, right? No peer pressure there. Um, I also love to go to the movies. Anybody love going to the movies? Raise your name. No, movies are the worst. Um, <laughs> does anybody think that? Actually, I mean, I'm just wondering. A few, okay. Um, <laughs> bah, humbug, movies are the worst. All right. So, um, and many times their movies are based off of a book. And so for people that don't like to read, they like to go watch a movie that's like based off of a book. And so the book of Romans, the section of Romans we're going to be dealing with for the next few weeks uh, is like a blockbuster epic movie. The, the director here for us is the Apostle Paul. The setting for the book of Romans is the world, the supporting cast, all of humanity. The plot is thick. God is reaching out to the world. The world is rejecting God, reaching out. And the result of this rejection is sin and suffering on a worldwide scale that is absolutely devastating. And of course, what the world needs is a hero. And the hero of this movie is Jesus, because he brings the one thing that we need and must have if we're going to experience the life that God has called us to experience, to know God the way that we're meant to know him, to fulfill the purposes that we were created for. And that one thing that we need that only Jesus can provide is grace, grace. Um, and the ending of the movie has this plot twist that you, uh, you know, you would only experience in the biggest blockbusters that Hollywood could put out. And it is absolutely the greatest story ever told. I mean, once you really understand grace, and how you get it and what God does through grace, you realize it really is the greatest story that's ever told. And this incredible story uh, is found in this letter. Many people, non-Christians even, believe that the book of Romans is the greatest letter that's ever been written. Many believers call the book of Romans the constitution of Christianity. It's that important. And probably nowhere in all of God's word is the case made for God's grace any greater, any more clearly, any more beautifully than in the book of Romans. Uh, but unfortunately, this book, this movie doesn't get off to a happy start. Um, the director, Paul, here begins by setting up a world that's under this dark 
cloud, man. Look in your Bible at Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse number 18. Romans 1 verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this movie isn't going to hide anything. Paul isn't going to sugarcoat anything. He's just telling it like it is. He says that our world is under the wrath of God because of godlessness and wickedness of the world, of the people. There's this one thing that makes God angry that we discover in this story. And the one thing that, the one thing that makes God angry in this story is sin, evil, wickedness, godlessness. Now, I realize that it's very unpopular and very, very much not politically correct in 2018 uh, to talk about the wrath of God because all we ever hear about is the love of God. And I love talking about the love of God. Uh, but we need to understand that because of the love of God, uh, we, have, we have to talk about the wrath of God. Let me give you a principle. This is kind of your key takeaway thought. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but write this down. God hates sin so much because he loves sinners. God hates sin so much because of how much he loves you. Now, suppose you read in the newspaper tomorrow about some stranger somewhere that gets brutally murdered. Well, that would bother you, wouldn't it? Right? You might even give that a a frowny face on Facebook or something. But suppose somebody did the most heinous, horrible, terrible thing that you can imagine to one of your children. That'll get a lot more than a frowny face on Facebook, wouldn't it? And that's how God feels every time one of his children is a victim to sin. God hates sin so much because of how much he loves sinners. God hates anything that hurts the people he created. He hates anything that would hurt you, that will hurt your marriage, that will hurt your family, hurt your children, and harm your soul. You would not, should not, and could not expect anything less from the love of God. You should not expect God to love you any less than you love your children. When you think about the wrath and anger, you should think about the love of God. The reason why God has that wrath against sin is because of his great love for sinners. And when you think about it, don't think about the way we get angry. Do you know what gets us mad most of the time? Do you know what angers us most of the time? It's when somebody hurts us. When somebody wrongs us. When somebody disrespects us. When somebody named us suffers injustice. That's when we get mad. Look at this next slide. God is not angry at sin primarily because of what it does to him. He's angry at sin primarily because of what it does to us. That's why he's angry. I mean, you know why God hates divorce? Because of what it does to marriage. You know why God hates abortion? Because of what it does to children. You know why God hates murder? Because of what it does to the people that he created. We're not talking about a God that just loses his temper and flies into a a temper tantrum and has a fit of rage. That's not what we're talking about at all. That's us. That's not him. We're talking about a God that's so holy that he exposes sin, and he's so angry that he opposes sin through his love. God doesn't get angry because he doesn't get his way. God doesn't get angry because somebody ticked him off. God doesn't get angry because somebody hurts him. God gets angry when something hurts you. Someone once said this, and, uh, that, and I believe it, that most people believe in a God without wrath who brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment, 
through the history of a Christ without a cross. So why is it that our world is under this dark cloud of God's wrath? What is it that we do that is so harmful to ourselves that it would, and harmful to each other that it would anger God? And the word I've kind of picked out tonight is the word compromise. Compromise. We were compromising from the very beginning, and we still compromise today. It's like this morning when we talked about the difference between conviction and preference. A conviction is something deep down on the inside that's going to show, I mean, on the inside that's going to show on the outside. A preference is something that you carry with you that when the pressure gets hot enough, when the pressure gets hard enough, strong enough, you'll let that preference go. Well, we compromise. Compromise got us into trouble all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and it's still happening today with Marcus and Alicia. It involves four things. Number one, write this down. It happens because we dis- dismiss the witness of God. We dismiss God's witness all throughout, through everything. Now, keep in mind that what Paul is doing, he's going to continuously uh, make the case for grace. God's grace is either amazing or it's just absolutely amusing, one or the other. Either we're all in need of the grace of God or none of us are in need of the grace of God. And so, Paul, what evidence is there that we need God's grace? I mean, before we get to God's grace, why do we even have to go through God at all to begin? Why do we even have to bother with this idea of God? Paul takes it up immediately. Look at verse number 19 again. Paul says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul doesn't mince words. He doesn't hold back. He basically says, there is a God and you know it. Stop pretending. We know enough to be accountable. If you've never heard the gospel, never read the Bible, you know enough about God to be accountable. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, God who is invisible uh, and unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable through everything that he has made. Look at this next slide. I don't know how good y'all can see that. That's my pretty wife and my little baby. And then there's a little thing called Mount Rushmore back there. That's probably not the first thing that you know. That was several years ago. Uh, Marcus is now bigger than everybody. And Amber's, Amber and Alicia are exactly the same, okay? But listen, several years ago, we went to Mount Rushmore. And what they do is they give you a tour. And we went, to, went on tour a bunch of French guys, French, French people. And they cussed too much. So we got off the tour and just did our own thing, right? right? And so I was like, wee oui, wee, oui, no, no. We're out of here, right? I've got babies, you know, potty mouth. Mount Rushmore. And so, and so we went on and did our own thing. But one of the things that the tour guide would talk about is all the work and the manpower that it took to create Mount Rushmore and all the years of work and effort and all of that. Let me tell you something. You don't have to tell anybody that. The one thing that never occurred to anybody with a brain in between their two ears is whether or not somebody made Mount Rushmore uh, on purpose. You don't have to tell us that somebody carved those faces. I didn't know who did it, and I don't even remember who did it now, but I know that somebody did it. In the same way that you know that somebody carved Mount Rushmore, all of creation screams the same thing. Every star in heaven is a billboard saying that God exists. Every sunrise is a neon sign. Every time the moon shines, it's a megaphone screaming out that there's a creator of the universe. 
Look at this next slide. The problem isn't that God has not spoken. The problem is we don't want to listen. God has spoken. The problem isn't that God has, people say, well, what about somebody who's never heard? They've heard enough every time the sun came up at the dawn of every morning to know about God. And if they would respond to the witness that he gave, he would provide further witness to them. The problem is not that God has not given witness to himself. The problem is we reject it, reject the evidence. It's like going to Mount Rushmore, man. That, yeah, I look at Mount Rushmore. You know what? And, and the wind and the rains and erosion over thousands and millions and billions of years made those guys heads. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter where you look or how you look. You'll see evidence for the glory and the power of God, the power of a creator. It doesn't matter if you look in a telescope. It doesn't matter if you peer into a microscope and look at the incredible and incomparable brilliance of our creator. We're told uh, here in scripture that we can know his eternal power and his divine nature all from creation and creation alone. He is intellectual because all this was created with a brilliant mind. Powerful because nobody can deny the incredible energy and power that is this thing called a universe. He is supernatural because in some real sense, he has to be outside of nature to create nature. Therefore, he has to be supernatural. He has to be eternal. Space and time are confined within the universe that he exists outside of that he created. He has to be spiritual because the universe is immaterial. You look up, down, and all around, God is plain to see if you want to see him. And if you don't, you'll believe anything. Look at this next slide. I love Sherlock Holmes, Watson and Holmes. Do you like that? Anybody watch the BBC series? Anybody? Raise your hand if you watch the BBC series. Okay, was it, it was good, wasn't it? Right? And there, it, was, it was pretty good. I don't remember. Was there anything bad in it? I don't recommend it. I don't remember right now. Sherlock and Holmes, that's, that's my favorite version. And Sherlock and Holmes, I remember hearing this story about Sherlock and Holmes one time. They went camping. And they laid down in their tent at night. And, and Holmes woke up. And he nudges Watson awake. And he says, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson, knowing everything was a test from Sherlock, said, I see millions and millions of stars. And Sherlock Holmes said, Watson, what does that tell you? Watson said, well, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. What else? He said, theologically, it tells me that God is great and that we are small and insignificant in comparison. What else? He said, well, meteorologically, I can't talk. It tells me we'll have a beautiful day tomorrow. The weather's going to be good. He said, Holmes, what does it tell you? And Sherlock looked at Watson and said, it tells me that somebody stole our tent. <laughs> Listen, this creation, some of y'all will get that tomorrow. They had a tent. This creation tells us there's a creator who is divine, powerful, and glorious. And he's made it evident, obvious to anybody who wants to see. Number two, write this down. The second reason why we're under the wrath of God is because we substitute God's worship. God's worship. We ignore his witness, and then we substitute worship of the true God. Paul addressed this fact by saying that there's, everybody has some knowledge of God. Again, he answered that question about, you know, what about people that have never heard about God? 
Paul clearly lays out the case. No one's innocent. No one is ignorant. And what he's saying is we can know enough about God to want to know more about God and respond. But how does the world respond? Look in verse number 21 in your Bible. Verse 21 says this. Because although they knew God, okay, he revealed himself in creation, he showed himself as creator, and yet because they knew God, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish. Um, That word foolish in the Greek is the same where we get our word moron. Moron. Paul says there's enough to know about God from creation that causes us to turn from God instead of, uh, instead of turning. I mean, he says there's enough in creation to turn towards God, but yet instead of turning towards God, what we do is we do something moronic and we turn away from God. We don't give him gratitude or glory. And actually, this is kind of mind-boggling. The more we learn about the absolute magnificence of God and who he is, the more people reject him as creator. Even though we reject God, many people don't reject the idea of God. Most people don't reject worship of God. They replace it. They replace it. Look at verse number 22. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. The more reason that we're given to worship the one true God, the more determined we become to worship false gods. We're talking here about idolatry. Now, unfortunately, whenever you think about idolatry, you're tempted just to think of the ancient people, Old Testament days, uh, you know, idolatry that looks like that. And you think, well, Brother Marcus, we're past that today. And I know what you think I'm going to say, and I will say it in just a moment. But the first thing you need to know is this. Idolatry is alive and well in the world today. I mean, I mean, not like old school, ancient, you know, like old school, Old Testament idolatry hasn't gone anywhere. All you got to do is go to Japan, go to India or California. You will find good old fashioned Old Testament biblical idolatry of epic proportions. It is as alive and well today. People are bowing and praying to inanimate objects in places in America, and they call it a church. And they would even dare tell you that they're Christians. They're brothers and sisters that belong to what used to be even evangelical uh, churches and i'm telling you right now they'll bow down to something painted on a wall and pray to that image idolatry is alive and well in america do not let anybody tell you different but like lee corso says that great philosopher not so fast my friend We all know that an idol is anything that we desire more than God, anything that's more important to us than God, anything that brings us greater fulfillment we think than God. The truth is that idolatry isn't just a pagan issue. It could be a Marcus issue and a Hunter issue and a a you issue. We can all be susceptible. And actually what I want to show you is this, that the altar of possession, the altar of pride, the, the, the gods of personalities, right? The God of pleasure. Listen, every sin, look at this next slide. The fountainhead of a river of sin is idolatry. Idolatry is like the beginning of all sin. All sin springs from idolatry. Almost all of it, whether you're worshiping yourself somebody else or something else your sin comes from idolatry everybody on this planet worships some kind of god and believes in some kind of god 
The, the most common warning in all of Scripture about sin isn't about gossiping, it isn't about lying, isn't about adultery, it isn't even about stealing. The number one warning about sin that we find in Scripture is idolatry, and it's not even close. And that's why the Bible preaches against idolatry and not atheism. Atheism isn't a problem with the head, it's a problem with the heart. Scripture's clear about that. Matter of fact, this, look at this next slide. Adrian Rogers, my favorite preacher, man. Come on. And um, anybody, raise your hand. Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. Okay, okay, okay. He said this. He used to say that an atheist can't find God for the same reason that a thief can't find a policeman. It's true. We've exchanged deity for idolatry. Number three. Now, that leads us to number three. So we abandon God's will. We abandon the will of God. Be forewarned, the next part, you may not like it, but I don't care. Jesus doesn't care, and the Bible doesn't care either. It's what God says. Look at verse number 24. It says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the light and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged their natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Again, what we see here is where compromise leads, that when we reject God, we reject the worship of God, we exchange purity for impurity. And when Paul refers to homosexual practices as unnatural, he doesn't just mean it goes against nature itself. He's referring to God's intentions for the human race. What is natural is God's divine design for men and women. What is natural in Scripture is always pure. In Scripture, anything that is against the will of God is sinful and shameful. Matter of fact, that's the definition of sin, to go against the will of God. That's sin. The point is this. Look at this next slide. There is a divine design to manhood and womanhood that should not be rejected, refused, or replaced. And Paul here is emphasizing the physical illustration for our spiritual condition. That may not be you physically, but often it has been us spiritually. We reject what God has called us to and we've gone through idolatry and sin and wickedness. We've gone to serve ourselves in other ways. All sin comes from idolaters. And all idolaters are sinners. And here's the point. When we use the witness of God and we turn away from the real God and we replace the worship of the true God with a false God, whether that's us or some false ideology that the world gives us, then we'll just natu naturally renounce the will of God and elevate our desires above his desires. We'll elevate our desires to such a high altar that we'll claim that's actually what the Bible says when it clearly does not. Instead of saying, not my will, yours be done, we say, not your will, but mine be done. We'll, we'll say it every time because we're idolaters and we're sinners. So we deny who God really is. We deny his worship. We don't recognize him for who he is. And because of that, we abandon his will for our life. And then ultimately, we leads us to number four. Write this down. We'll absolutely mock the word of God. 
We mock God's word. Look at this next slide. That's a cute kid. I don't know who that is. That's a cute kid. Amen. Now imagine for a second that we replaced a trained pilot that had tens of thousands of hours flying a, 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 a 747 with a five-year-old kid who has never flown anything. What would happen? Crash and burn every time. The end result of embracing spiritual idolatry, sexual impurity, always winds up with social iniquity and the mocking of God's word. It's like, a, I put it in my notes, a nervous breakdown between the heart and the soul. And this next passage sounds like today. Look at verse 28. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. When we reject our vertical relationship with the creator of the universe, our lateral relationships with each other will always be off. When this relationship is bad, all other relationships will not be what they need to be. They'll be distorted and beyond human repair, if you will. When we don't do what we ought to do when it comes to God, we surely aren't going to do what we ought to do with each other. To put it another way, look at this next slide. When divine standards disappear, society disintegrates. When we break up with God, there will be a breakdown in society every time. Paul then closes with the description we can no, when we hit rock bottom, look at verse 32. He says, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It's one thing when we imitate each other and refusing, rejecting, replacing, and renouncing God, but the rock bottom is, is when we applaud wrongdoing. When we elevate wickedness and sin to a place of exaltation when it's something to be ashamed of. Well, that's the message. Now, listen, I know that when you read that, I don't know if you like me. I love people and I like to think the best of people. Man, that's a that's description right there, man. Paul cuts no one any slack whatsoever. So you could be sitting here tonight and you I mean, that's a pretty big downer. We reject God, we do this, we do that, the disintegration of society. This is terrible. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. He's always the answer. The world began with the first man and the first woman compromising. Right? The first Adam sinned. The second Adam did not sin. He did not compromise. Jesus came to die for our sins and to forgive us. He offers us the best remedy for the deal. Paul, it's clear. We can't fix this ourselves. Jesus says, I'll take your guilt and give you my grace. I'll take your sin and give you salvation. I'll take your faults and give you forgiveness. And you're not going to get a better deal than that. 
The worst deal you'll ever make is to refuse the deal that Jesus Christ offers. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and was resurrected on the third day, died and was resurrected on the third day, he sealed the deal. You need to receive Christ. Christ is the answer. Now, if you're a believer tonight, I, I wanted to end with a couple of practical things. Look at this next slide. Here's some things we need to be reminded of. We need to daily acknowledge the witness of God. Man, how about when you get up in the morning, you just think about creation for a second and give God a little glory, a little worship, even if it's raining, especially if it's raining. Praise God. Spiritually experience the worship of God. Don't ignore worshiping God. And uh, worship isn't just something that happens at church. You can worship God anywhere, anytime. I'll never understand why you would come to church and not worship them. I don't get it. Practically obey the will of God. God has a calling on your life. Obey God. Personally love the word of God. Spend time in God's word. It's his letter to you. He wants you to read it and to understand it and to follow him. It will absolutely change your life. But you can't do any of that until Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Let's pray.